Hello everyone, welcome back to Stuck on Arrakis. Today is my very first all live reaction Wheel of Time episode. I'm really excited for you guys to hear it, especially since one of the most amazing predictions comes true <laughs> in this uh, in this episode, and you get to hear my reaction. Um, this is going to be chapters 8 through 12, I think. Um, so obviously, no spoilers past chapter 12. Enjoy, please enjoy. Hello friends, it's Reading Leslie here. I am in the living room on the couch because my husband is playing Valheim with a friend, so I have been banished out of the office. <laughs> Which is okay, because, you know, I don't really like hanging out in my office all that much sometimes, and right now, it's definitely one of those times. But that's not what you're here for. You're here for my live reaction. So I finished reading chapter 8, um, which is called Dragon Eggs, a couple of hours ago. Um, and then, you know, I got high, had a snack, shit like that. But now I'm sitting down to record my live react. So this um, particular chapter is uh, from Matt's point of view. And a couple of really interesting things happen in this chapter. Um, and it was a big step up from the last chapter in which uh, Matt, you know, spanked Jolene because she did something that he didn't like. Which you already know my opinions on that. But anyway, <laughs> this is a big, uh, big step forward for the book, thank God. Um, so, uh, after the Sean Chan soldiers uh, showed up um, in the last chapter, Luca was like, guys, we're getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> Everyone pack your shit up. Uh, because I guess now that, I don't know, it, Luca is just nervous that that's going to keep happening and uh, they're not fucking around with the Sean Chan. So they leave and they go to a different town, which is much smaller. Um, but, yeah, the narration says, What is certain for sure, though, is that those fellows will cause trouble if we stay another day. No point in staying when it means fights with soldiers and maybe people hurt so they can't perform. So they just moved on, which is a good thing for Matt and the gang as well, uh, because obviously they want to be as far away from the Sean Chan as humanly possible. Matt says something about having to send Tuan back to Ebu Dar. Not really sure why he thinks he needs to send her back, um, but I guess we'll see. Maybe it's so she can, I don't know, show back up again and be like, surprise, I was missing on purpose. Um, by the way, I'm the Empress now. <laughs> oh my god, I just realized Matt is like courting the Empress of the Sean Chan right now. <laughs> oh man. Um, we also, okay, so my favorite part of this chapter is Matt finally figures out why Eludra needed a bell founder, and it's because, so from what I can gather from this chapter, um, whatever Eludra's fireworks are, like a ball or something like that, that she's putting in these wooden tubes and launching them from the little tubes that I think are made of wood or something like that. Um, and she is interested in a bell founder's work because she wants to make those same launch tubes out of bronze. And with bronze, she could launch a small object, like, closer to two miles, rather than the, like, um, 300 paces is apparently how much her, um, her normal lofting tubes will send the, uh, I've been saying launching tubes, it's lofting tube. <laughs> anyway, that's how, how much her, um, normal lofting tubes will send something. But she's saying, 
with a bronze tube, I could use a charge that would send something a little smaller, close to two miles. Um, and so they get really excited and they start talking about this idea for these bronze lofting tubes that shoot things. And Aludra starts calling them dragons. And um, she says, lofting tubes are for making the night flowers bloom, for delighting the eye. I will call them dragons, and the Shan-Chan will howl when my dragons bite. So her her whole motivation behind creating... Oop. <laughs> behind creating... My phone fell. <laughs> um, behind creating these uh, dragons is to take revenge on the Shan-Chan for destroying the guild and all of her friends. So... That's pretty fucking badass. <laughs> and uh, Matt is saying that, um, you know, they're going to have to put these things on wagons because they're going to be so huge. So I think what they're doing, these dragons are actually cannons. And um, whenever they figure out how to make these cannons, um, they'll be more effective against the Shantan because they can just, you know, launch a cannon at them or a dragon egg and, uh, you know, <laughs> fuck up quite a few of them at the same time. Um, and, you know, their ships and stuff like that. So, very interesting. Ooh, speaking of which, I think it'd be cool if we got, like, some ship fighting action, you know, since the Shan-Chan, I don't know, have ships. <laughs> I fucking don't know. <laughs> um, I'm high, as usual. <laughs> oh, yeah. Matt is thinking about how eventually there's going to be a showdown with the Shan-Chan and that he's definitely going to be there, and it says... <laughs> The band was going to end up fighting Shan-Chan, and most likely Trollocs as well, and he would be there when it happened. There was no getting around the fact. Try to avoid it how he would. That bloody Taveran twisting would put him right in the bloody middle. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that he's self-aware now. Oh, this is really interesting. So, um, while Aludra is explaining her dragon and dragons and dragon eggs to Matt, she is also in the process of, like, launching a night flower. Is that what she calls it? Night flower? Her fireworks. Um, and as she does so, um, the narration says this. This is very interesting. A hollow thump came from inside the enclosure, and acrid smoke billowed over the canvas wall. Moments later, the night flower bloomed in the darkness above Runian Crossing, a great ball of red and green streaks. It bloomed again and again in his dreams that night, and for many nights after, but there it bloomed among charging horsemen and massed pikes, rending flesh as he had once seen stone rent by fireworks. In his dreams, he tried to catch the things with his hands, tried to stop them, yet they rained down in unending streams on a hundred battlefields. In his dreams, he wept for the death and destruction, and somehow it seemed that the rattling of the dice in his head sounded like laughter, not his laughter, the Dark One's Laughter. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, um, we've had a couple... We've seen a couple mentions of, like, for example, in Eggwing's Dream, where she sees uh, Matt do something with a firework, and she knows that this will be the death and destruction of, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. We've seen, uh, we've seen Matt also, like, bowling with uh, human lives, um, and of course, we're going to be launching like cannon balls out of these dragons. So I think this has been kind of fore foretold and foreshadowed uh, several times in the series. So I'm kind of getting the idea that um, these dragons and dragon eggs are going to, you know, come into play 
and that they're going to be really hard to stop and they're going to do a lot of damage to either side. Um, it's always possible that whoever um, Matt is using these cans against, especially if it's the Shan Chan, um, they have Bell Founders and Ebudar. They could easily make their own cannons too. So maybe at one point, you know, we'll have both sides using cannons and mass destruction. And then if you take into account all of the um, channeling and, and magic users um, on top of the cannons, that's going to be a huge battle and it's going to be bloody and, and horrible. So we'll see about that. I'm pretty excited about it though. Not because I want a whole bunch of people to be like killed in horrible ways, but because that will be a huge turning point for, you know, our side. Because I think this might be one of those things. Well, the Dark One's laughing. So maybe he does know that this is going to happen. I, I fucking don't know. <laughs> oh, um, Bale and Egyana get married, which is fantastic. I'm so excited for them. Finally, I was really concerned that Egyana wasn't going to be able to get over her whole, like, oh, Bale is my property thing but it sounded like they were able to but that might also be because um i don't i i i don't actually remember what's going on with tuan and Egiana, but um tuan gave her a different name i can't remember what it is lailwin lailwin shipless or something like that and um she said that she can never return to the shan chan and stuff like that so i don't know if she's been like excommunicated <laughs> Or, sub or banished or something. I don't fucking know. But maybe that's the reason why she felt like she could uh, marry him, finally. Matt moves into a tent instead of sharing um, their little wagon with them now because they need privacy. <laughs> uh, but that reminds me, yesterday I was editing the, the episode that just went up um, about chapter 3 through 7. And I said that Matt shared a wagon with some of the uh, the band that's not what I meant. <laughs> I knew that they, um, I know that Matt sleeps with Egyan and, and Bale because the two men swap uh, using the second bed or the floor. <laughs> so that's just an example of all the times that I've been high and accidentally said the wrong thing or gotten shit mixed up. You guys know that I do that. If you've listened to a single one of my episodes, I probably fucked up several times in this one. <laughs> it's just because I'm high all the time. But can you blame me? It's fucking 2021. Oh, um, Matt keeps thinking about Rand and the swirling color shit happens. And then a lot of the times men and Rand are having intimate moments. <laughs> and he's, he's having a hard time because, you know, he keeps hearing about Rand and two on later is asking about him and something and stuff like that. And uh, <laughs> he just he keeps accidentally spying on uh, Rand and men and intimate moments, which I mentioned this in the last episode. I really wish that our characters could just have private moments be private uh, because it's really weird to keep dropping in on them. <laughs> um, we also get a little bit more of a um, commoner's POV of the events that are happening in the world right now. Um, a lot of them know that he's missing and are really frightened by the fact that he's missing because... God, who knows what could have happened to him and who knows what's going to happen now if Rand has died or been captured or something like that. If the Dragon Reborn was dead, what was the world to do? That was the question that people asked over breakfast in the morning and ale in the evening and likely on going to bed. So, um, 
obviously Rand has his own plans and he's getting his shit done or whatever, but um, it's definitely, you know, from the outside to the people who don't know what the fuck Rand is up to, um, it's a little bit scary because they're all kind of counting on him to save the world. <laughs> oh, I guess <laughs> at some point, uh, Tuan, Matt keeps going to see Tuan because, you know, he's trying to court her. <laughs> they wouldn't let him inside the wagon, and the narration says, It seemed a bird had managed to get inside during the day, an extremely bad omen, apparently, and the pair of them had to spend the night in prayer and contemplation to avert some evil or another. And then on the next page, Tuan uh, says that Matt needs to understand all of these omens and things because she won't have him being ignorant about them. <laughs> She also, uh, they're playing stones, and while they're playing stones, uh, she mentions that the Dragon Reborn needs to kneel to the Crystal Throne, and that securing whoever blew the horn, man or woman, may be as important as securing the Dragon Reborn himself. Which is interesting, because she's, <laughs> she's sitting right in front of him. <laughs> I'm surprised that he hasn't told her yet. I mean, I guess I'm not, but... Um, then... They go on a horse ride after Matt gives Tuan the razor horse that he bought uh, the day before or whatever. Um, and it's a huge deal because apparently that's a big part of courting in the Shan Chan culture. And she has given him some, he has given her something very rare and unique. Um, and it's a really good present. And it makes her smile. It makes her really happy. It's very cute. Um, but once he gives her the horse, it, he says that one of the dice in his head has stopped rolling. And that um, a different one had stopped whenever he made his agreement with Aludra. It sounds like there are, you know, the dice in his head course can correspond to different events. Um, I was under the impression, or at least it has been in the past, where uh, one event has completely stopped the dice all at the same time, like meeting Tuan for the first time. But it sounds like um, that's changed now, and he is kind of having to f figure out um, what his next steps are to keep you know the dice, and, or to quiet the dice down. So he's gotten two of the things that he needed to do done, and now I guess he has a couple more. Um, then they go on their horse ride, they meet some tinkers and run away from them, and where they run away to... Um, Matt remembers where they are, even though his memories are from somebody like who the fuck knows how long ago. Um, but it says, he remembered being an Asandarin lord in a battle fought among these ruins, and he remembered having those hills in his view when he took an arrow through his throat. He must have fallen no more than half a mile from the very spot where he set pits, drowning in his own blood. Holy shit. <laughs> And then he has this incredible re revelation that actually blew my mind. He says, Somehow only the light knew that Eelfin had gathered the memories they had planted in his head, but how could they harvest memory from a corpse? A corpse in the world of men, at that. He was certain they never came to this side of the twisted door frame Terangriol for longer than, t than minutes at a time. A way occurred to him, one he did not like, one not a scrap. Maybe they had created some sort of link to any human who visited them, a link that allowed them to copy all of a man's memories after that, right up to the moment he died. So, Matt's current uh, theory here is that the reason he has all of these memories is because he's linked to the Eelfin, 
and the Eelfin are also making copies of his memories, and that maybe, I don't know, in a couple of ages, <laughs> um, somebody can have access to Matt's memories. I fucking don't know. That's pretty crazy. So that was really interesting. I still don't know a whole lot about the Eelfin. Um, I kind of think that Matt is right, though, because he has, like, this understanding of things now that he's gained probably from being connected to the Eelfin, if that's actually the case. So I'm going to have to, like, agree with him, I guess, for now, and see if something else happens um, that gives me more of an idea of what is actually going on with his memories, but it sounds like a pretty good theory to me. And then um, at the end of the chapter, um, they stop and meet with the Tinkers again, because they started, as soon as they saw the Tinkers, Tuan took off the other way to go to this place with the dancing hills or whatever, and the Tinkers follow them because um, they're like, what happened? <laughs> they thought that uh, their dogs had scared their horses, so they brought the dogs and chased them to make sure that that wasn't the case, which is just kind of backwards. But anyway, <laughs> Matt asks them what they're up to, and they say, Word is spreading among the people that there is safety where the Shan-Chan rule and equal justice for all. Elsewhere, you understand, my lord. So there are, you know, the Tinkers are outcasts. They're mistrusted. A lot of the other people in the world are very prejudiced against them. And it sounds like uh, the Shan-Chan will give them the same equal treatment that they give everyone. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Maybe it is. Um, but we'll see. But that's it. That's Dragon. Dragon. What? Dragon's eggs. <laughs> Um, it was a good chapter. I really liked it. Lots of interesting stuff happened, and I'm excited for the next one. Okay, take one billion. Hello, friends. Reading Leslie here. <laughs> I just finished chapter 10, A Village in Shiota, um, but I haven't recorded a live reaction for chapter 9 yet, so that's going to be what I'm doing now. Um, chapter 9, we're still with Matt. They're still traveling in Luca's circus, trying to get away from Ebudar. Um... In this chapter, we learn that not only has Tuan given Egyanin a different name, but she's no longer part of the Shan Chan. She's been, like, excommunicated, I guess, or something like that, which actually opens a lot of opportunities for her, um, like, you know, being able to marry Bail and, I don't know, not having to deal with their bullshit anymore. I think that uh, Egyanin is actually probably pretty upset about the whole situation, but I think it'll be good in the end. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I noticed that's kind of frustrating is that we've seen other characters change names in the book, um, especially when they're reincarnated as some different person, um, like for the Forsaken, for example. Um, or, you know, if, um, if women get captured and made Demane, then they get new names. And um, that's how the narration will refer to them afterwards, um, for the most part, unless they're freed again. But for some reason, Robert Jordan refuses to call Egyanin, uh I can't remember what her name is now. God damn it. Oh, Laelwyn, I think is, is her name, Laelwyn. Um, Robert Jordan won't call her Laelwyn with the narration. The narration continues to call her Egyanin, like still in the in the next chapter as well. Um, so I just think it's interesting that he's making a choice to change everybody else's name in the narration, but when Egyanin, who 
I think has accepted that her name is different now and she is accepting that this is a part of her punishment. This is very cultural for her. Um, I think it's kind of shitty to continue to call her by a name that she doesn't want to be known as anymore. So I thought that was interesting. Um, apparently, oh, I think I talked about this in the last uh, live reaction that I did, but apparently in Sean Chan Customs, if you're trying to marry somebody that is above your station, um, you have to give them something really unique and rare as a gift. And Matt happens to do so kind of not unknowing <laughs> um, that he is doing, you know, that that's what he's doing. He just gives her a gift because she needs a horse and he likes her and he wanted to get her a nice horse. Um, but there's, you know, there's always, does Sean Chan always have a catch somewhere with this whole courting thing? Like, um, Matt has already basically married <laughs> to on by saying that she's his wife three times. And now he's done this like huge courting thing for her, but it's just interesting that he, he keeps accidentally doing the right thing and he keeps fucking up in the right way. <laughs> Apparently, Bethaman is learning how to channel. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> uh, is it Seta? Oh, yeah. Seta, whenever Bethaman is being trained to channel in the uh, wagon with them, she covers her eyes. <laughs> Even though they swear that they can't see channeling, she covers her eyes so she doesn't learn anything. Which, like, just, I don't know, cultural things. Uh, apparently, they're trying to hit the Aes Sedai or being so brazen and bold. Um, now they're trying to hit, they hit Matt with obje objects thrown by the power just to see if they could do that with his uh, Torangriol around his neck. And apparently, he can be hit with objects that are picked up by the power, but not the power itself. Oh, do you remember whenever I, I think this was in the last live reaction that I did, or maybe it was the last episode... Um, I mentioned that Mistress Anan, or Anon, Mistress Anon, Anan, <laughs> she, um, I, I thought that she was former Aes Sedai, and it turns out that she was, um, but Aes Sedai expect that when certain things happen, the woman will go away decently and die soon after. I went away, but Jasper found me half-starved and sick on the streets of Ebudar and took me to his mother. He used to take in stray kittens, too. Now you know some of my secrets, and I know some of yours. Shall we keep them to ourselves? And I think that she's talking about the uh, Matt's secret being the Tarangriol that he knows. She, she recognizes as a Tarangriol. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, so this was some shit. So the Aes Sedai are, I think they come into the tent with Lady Tuan. And Jolene tries to boss uh, Tuan around about something. Um, we need to work together. Um, carry carry my offer of uh, treaty or whatever to whoever is, is at the top of the Shan Chan Empire, which she's talking to right now. <laughs> um, but Tuan gets upset and has Seleucia put uh, Adom on both Jolene and Teslin, and and she's like she's gonna treat them like they're Damane. Um, and of course, this is very traumatic for the well, Jolene. I, I don't think is quite as traumatized as Teslin is because Teslin has experienced that and gotten away from it, and now she finds herself collared again. 
And I think Jolene gets a nice taste of her own medicine here because she seems to think that Shan Chan are a joke. Um, she tries to get a look at them. She's walking around like she doesn't have anything to be afraid of. And I don't know if it's because Tuan's there and she thinks Tuan can just wave shit away or what. I mean, she can, but Jolene doesn't know that. And she's taking a risk and she's putting everybody in the traveling show at risk because she does not understand what, you know, what the consequences of her actions are. So I think after being collared for, you know, briefly, probably sobered her up quite a bit. I think that, um, I think that Tuan tries to get the Aes Sedai to attack Matt with something, but Tuan notices that the weaves melt when they touch him because of the Turangrial, but if she can't see weaves because she can't channel, then how the fuck does she know that happened? Mm-hmm. Oh my god, this is amazing. Um, Jolene asked if, uh, Matt wanted to be one of her warders, which is like, no, Jolene, fuck you. You're nothing but trouble. You are such a headache. He's got, he already has enough trouble with Tuan. <laughs> um, and then Matt buries the Adom, the three Adom, in the woods later to get rid of them so that they can never be used again. Yeah, okay, chapter nine is done. Now we're on to chapter 10, a village in Chiota. Um, so before I started just doing live reactions for everything, I, well, I still have a channel for people to request that I do live reactions for certain chapters because some things, you know, happen that are cool and you guys think I'll probably be excited about and want to talk about immediately. So this was one of the chapters that was requested for me to do a live reaction to, and now I know why. <laughs> um, let's just say that it's the culmination, the, the grand finale of a theory that I've been working on since the end of book five. Okay, so... Um, after the Shan Chan, as we know, after the Shan Chan soldiers come and try to get into the carnival without paying, Luke is like, we gotta get the fuck out of here because they're probably gonna cause trouble later. Um, so they're leaving and they come across this village and they decide that they're gonna stop there for the night. Uh, but first, so that's like the basic premise behind the start of this chapter, right? They're traveling, they get to this town, they're gonna stop there for the night and probably stay for a couple shows. Matt and Tuan are talking about how ravens can be spies for the Dark One. And Tuan says, How many children's tales do you believe? Do you believe that if you sleep on Old Hobbs Hill under full moon, the snakes will give you true answers to three questions, or that foxes steal people's skins and take the nourishment from food so you can starve to death while eating your fill? And of course we know that, like, two of those are definitely true. <laughs> um, the Snakes will give you answers to three questions, which is exactly what they did to Matt. And um, the thing about the foxes stealing people's skins. So the theory that Matt's currently working on is that the eelfin, who I guess are the foxes, um, try or they have some connection to you. They have they take your memories and they have like some sort of link between the person that visits them and them, so they can continue eating their memory, or, uh, stealing their memories. Um, and this says, they steal people's skin and take nourishment from food, so you starve to death while eating your fill. For some reason, I think that that's, that's, like, one of those old wives' tales that gets kind of lost in translation, because it's very possible that, I mean, I think that they do make, like, leather out of people. <laughs> 
Um, but I think that they take, just take your memories, um, and maybe your emotions or something like that. So, and that's why, uh, Matt has this, like, library of memories that he can access, but he believes, and I am with him in the belief that the, uh, Eofans still have some sort of connection to him, and they are gaining something from that connection that they have to him. What were the odds of her mentioning snakes giving true answers, which the Elfin did after a fashion, in the same breath with foxes stealing skins. He was pretty sure that the Elfin did and made leather from it, but it was old Hob that nearly made him flinch. The other was likely just Taverin twisting at the world. She certainly knew nothing about him and the snakes or the foxes. In Shandal, the land where Arthur Hawkwing had been born, though, old Hob, Kaysen Hob, had been another name for the Dark One. So if you fall asleep on his hill under a full moon, the snakes will give you true... I'd like... Hold on. I don't understand. Is she saying that... I don't know. I'm confused. <laughs> um, because obviously you don't have to fall asleep on, on a hill in order to have that happen. You can just walk through the doorways while they're there. But maybe if you fall asleep in Shale Ghoul during the full moon, it will also take you to the land of the foxes and snakes. I don't fucking know. Anyway, um, both of the, all of those uh, just children's stories that she throws out have um, a serious ring of truth to them, especially for Matt himself. Um, so they start going through this village in Chiota, and as they're going by, you know, usually when a circus comes through, everybody's really excited. It's very interesting. There's all sorts of new people and exotic creatures and things like that. So it draws attention. But Matt notices that as they're going through this village, nobody is stopping to look at them. It's like they're not even there. Then the whole circus is riding into a field where they can just chill and set up their camps and stuff like that. And they see a peddler um, riding down the street. And these are paved streets um, with, like, nicer buildings. And um, that already seems weird to Matt, that they have paved streets. But so while the peddler is running, or, you know, traveling through the street, something changes. And he looks down and he's like, he can't believe... He can't believe that all of a sudden there are paving stones on this road. And this peddler has an established route, so he would have had to known that had to have known that these streets were paved with stones before, but he seems shocked himself to hear his horse's hooves hitting paved streets. Landing, he lurched awkwardly and looked down towards his feet. His hat fell from his hand, landing on the hard packed road. That was when he began screaming. The paving stones were gone, and he was ankle-deep in the road, just like his shrieking horses, ankle-deep and sinking into rock-hard clay as if into a bog, just like his horses and his wagon. Around the village, houses and people melting slowly into the ground. So, this is like some fucking, I don't know, it's some crazy dark one shit. Like, it's like a ghost town, and I don't understand if it... Was it like a bubble of evil that came up and then when it popped, it like took everything that was in the town with it? Was it just waiting for the peddler? I don't know what the fuck happened, man. But those were dead people walking around on the streets. That village is not there anymore and then it all just disappears and takes the peddler with them. And Matt and the entire circus watch this guy sink into the ground and Matt says, it says, he wished he could believe the peddler was dead. So who the fuck knows what even happened to him? 
I kind of have the feeling that Noel is lying still. He said that he's Jane Farstrider's cousin. I almost feel like maybe he is Jane Farstrider and the um, criticisms that he has are like a man looking back at the things that he's done and being regretful for going off to see the world rather than spending, you know, his wife's last months on on the planet or in life, um, spending it with her instead. But everybody is just in shock. <laughs> and uh, Noel kept peering up the road towards the Aes Sedai. Doubtless by that night, he would be claiming to have seen something very like this before, only on a much grander scale. <laughs> uh, maybe he's a little bit of a showboat, you know? So after, okay, we're getting to the good shit now. So after all this happens, Luke convinces everybody to go through exactly where that town just was to continue going through. And, um, or maybe it was behind them. I don't fucking know. But to press on, to not go back, go forward instead. And that's exactly what they do. And they do so. Um, and then they end up stopping for the night, I think, um, a little bit while later. I mean, they're like hucking and bucking to get the fuck away from there. <laughs> and then they finally decide to stop. But Tom is in Matt's tent with, you know, everybody else. And they're, they're playing uh, snakes and foxes. And Tom is reading that letter that he's always reading from Moraine. And it says, Tom sat reading the letter Matt had brought him what seemed a very long time ago. The page was heavily creased from being carried in Tom's coat pocket and much smudged from being read and reread. He had said it was from a dead woman. So Matt sees Tom reading this letter again and he asks about it and Oh my god, this fucking letter. Okay, so we know the letter's from Moraine, right? Um, and you guys know that, like, the second she died, I was like, Moraine's not dead, are you kidding me? There's no fucking way. So, this is the letter from Moraine. I think I'm gonna read the whole thing, because, I don't know, I just want to gloat a little bit. <laughs> my dearest Tom, okay. <laughs> um, so, there's definitely something happening between those two. There are many words I would like to write to you, words for my heart, but I have put this off because I knew that I must, and now there is little time. There are many things I cannot tell you, lest I bring disaster, but what I can, I will. Heed carefully what I say. In a short while, I will go down to the docks, and there I will confront Landfear. How can I know that? That secret belongs to others. Suffice it that I know, and let that foreknowledge stand as proof for the rest of what I say." Oh my god. <laughs> when you receive this, you will be told that I am dead. All will believe that. I am not dead. <laughs> and it may be that I shall live to my appointed years. It also may be that you and Matt Cotham and another, a man I do not know, will try to rescue me. May, I say, because it may be that you will, will not or cannot, or because Matt may refuse. He does not hold me in the affection you seem to. And he has his reasons, which he no doubt thinks are good. If you try, it must be only you and Matt and one other. More will mean death for all. Fewer will mean death for all. Even if you come only with Matt and one other, death also may come. I have seen you try and die, one or two or all three. I have seen myself die in the attempt. I have seen all of us live and die as captives. Should you decide to make the attempt anyway... Young Matt knows the way to find me, yet you must not show him this letter until he asks about it. 
That is of the utmost importance. He must know nothing that is in this letter until he asks. Events must play out in certain ways, whatever the cost. If you see Lanigan, tell him that all of this was for the best. His destiny follows a different path than mine. I wish him all happiness when I need. A final point. Remember what you know about the game of snakes and foxes. Remember and heed. It is time, and I must do what must be done. May the light illumine you and give you joy, my dearest Tom, whether or not we ever see one another again. Maureen. Oh my god. I can't, I like, I can't. There's no outward, like, expression of how unbelievably excited and happy I am that I was right. Because, fuck, man. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I will also admit that based on the description of, well, hold on. Let me, I'll get to that in just a second. Matt says, but Lan's bond to her broke. She's dead. She's definitely dead. And Matt says, or I'm sorry, and Tom says, and her letter says, Everyone would believe that. She knew, Matt. She knew it all in advance. She knew fucking all of it in advance. And the interesting thing, too, is that she's seen um, the attempts to save her over and over and over again. She's seen um, that it says, I have seen you try and die, one or two or all three. I have seen myself die in the attempt. I have seen all of us live and die as captives. So how, though? Like... How is she? How has she been able to see all of this play out over and over again in different scenarios? I don't fucking understand. Was it something that the Aelfin told her about? I just don't understand. I guess we'll find out. Um, but Oliver knows that they're in the Tower of Ganji, which, by the way, I did mention that it's very possible that um, them playing the game um, would have some something to do with eventually getting more rain out. If she was still with the Aelfin and the Elfin, <laughs> I was right. Um, anyway, so Oliver knows that they're in the Tower of Ganji and that Brigitta is the one who told him that the Tower of Ganji is the way to the lands of the Elfin and the Elfin. And um, they're like, well, we don't know where this tower is. We don't know where this tower is. And Noel says, the thing gleams like burnished steel, I'm told, 200 feet high and 40 thick. And there's not an opening to be found in it. Who could forget seeing that? And Matt went very still. And Oliver says, Brigitte, Brigitte says, you make the sign on the side of it anywhere with a bronze knife. He made the sign that started the game. And then a door will open. Uh, Matt tells them that Baldemon knows where this tower is. Because um, even though Matt can't remember going by it because he was under the influence of the ruby dagger, he does remember kind of remember it and then Noel decides that he wants to be the third person so I guess that's what's happening and when this whole conversation is over and Matt decides that he's going to help them rescue Moraine the last set of dice stops rolling in his head oh my god oh my god I've never been so happy and excited to be right about anything in my fucking life I swear to god <laughs> yes I knew it yes Okay, that's all I got. Bye. All right, reading Leslie here. So I just finished chapters 11 and 12. Um, so let's start with chapter 12. Or I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I can't count. Uh, let's start with chapter 11. I literally have the book open to chapter 11. And I was literally looking at the number 11 when I said 12. So that's how this podcast is going to go, I guess. Um, so uh, 
the traveling show and Matt and the gang um, travel far, far away from where from where streets swallow peddlers. And they, now they're in a town called Madarin. Madarin? Madarin, I guess. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, the they hang out for a day or so. Um, everybody's kind of hungover from the night before when the scary thing happened. And Tuan decides that she wants to go to what is called a hell, which is just like a shady tavern or something like that. You know, where ruffians go and gamble and have knife fights and things like that. Tuan is very excited about the idea of seeing Matt in a knife fight, which she does kind of get to see. Um, but Matt's like, oh my god, I can't take you to a hell. Look at you. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to get into a fight with anyone. I don't want to go in there and ask for trouble. You are, we're on the run here, okay? Like, you're supposed to be hidden and far away from everybody's sight. <laughs> And she wants to go to a hell of all places. So Tom comes in and hears kind of what's going on. And he's like, don't worry, I've got the perfect hell. Well, it's not actually a hell. It's just um, a little, a slightly seedy establishment. Um, so they go, they get all dressed up. It's a date. They go on a date. Um, and they go to this hell and they get drinks. Tuan tries ale for the first time and likes it. That was really exciting. <laughs> Um, Tom learns a couple things about the guards and the nobles and shit like that in the area. And he says, it's interesting, these outlanders, referring to the Shan Chan, these outlanders come, take charge, impose their laws, snatch up women who can channel, and if the nobles resent them, very few among the common people seem to, unless they've had a wife or relation collared anyway. So... I don't know, that is kind of weird. They just kind of seem like nobody really cares that, that the Sean Chan are coming in and taking over. Um, unless, you know, they just happen to take one of their women away. Matt sees some people working and they reminded him how much he hated work. <laughs> Same. <laughs> I was just having that exact thought. They When they get to the bar, they find a table and Matt goes to set his hat down on the table and both Tuan and Seleucia like freak out because apparently it's bad luck to put a hat on a table. Um, so that's another one of their superstitions or beliefs. Yeah, not a lot happens. Matt gambles, he wins a lot, and then he loses at the very end. Um, we find out that the Shan Chan now have, well, we knew that they had fork root tea, um, which will be relevant in the next chapter. But apparently they're starting to make people uh, drink the tea and that's how they know that a woman can channel, which is interesting because I, I mean, I feel like that's a lot safer and more effective. It's very, it'll be very difficult for anybody who can channel to get past them now, um, whereas it would probably be easier before if they could kind of fake. I don't remember what the test was that they used to see if women can channel or not, but um, this seems a lot easier and a lot less foolproof, you know what I mean? Or more foolproof than um, them just testing women that might be able to channel. One of the guys that was gambling with Matt at the, uh, I can't remember what the tavern is called. Oh, the White Ring. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so one of the guys that Matt was gambling at the White Ring, wait, the White Ring? Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> One of the guys that Matt was gambling with at the White Ring leaves kind of abruptly 
And later, whenever Tuan and Tom and Salusia and Matt are leaving, they get attacked by a group of, I don't know, fuckers. <laughs> and the guy that got up after gambling, um, he was he was one of the ones that attacked Matt. And I'm pretty sure that those are dark friends under the order of the Forsaken. Because as we saw a couple of chapters ago or some point in this book, uh, Morden has put a hit or whatever out on those two in particular. Um, we see Matt be attacked here and we see Perrin being attacked in the next chapter. Speaking of which, let's go to the next chapter. Um, so the Shan Chan and Perrin are full steam ahead on their plan to um, give all of the channelers in the Shido camp for crew tea to take them out. Um, so they won't have to deal with them when they go in to rescue uh, Fayul and the gang. Um, so first they go visit um, a guy who, like, keeps the rockin' and the... Um, I can't remember what the other version of it is called. Morat, Morth rockin'. I don't know. Anyway, so they go get some of those birds. But one of the... Um, in the, the beginning... <laughs> of the chapter. I'm not even that high, guys. I swear. We're so out of weed right now. Um, I think I'm just crazy from being so sober. <laughs> um, Perrin is thinking about Aram and the fact that Aram's been kind of hanging out with Masima, which is very fucking concerning. But he says he has as, he had as good as put that sword <laughs> he had as good as put that sword in Aram's hand. And now Aram and the sword were his responsibility. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, he he was definitely involved with putting the sword in Aram's hand. And like I've mentioned a couple times, I feel like Aram has such a darkness in him. Um, and I'm really nervous about what is going to happen with him. Because I feel like that darkness is just going to keep getting bigger and darker. And he's going to start... I mean, God, what if he's already a dark friend? I hadn't even considered that yet. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. The Shanshan that Perrin are with are actually kind of cool. Like, they seem pretty down to earth. And besides the cultural differences, you know, they definitely don't trust each other, these Shanshan and Perrin. But I think they see that they could both... There's a mutual benefit with this relationship. And um, we see a, an episode... Well, let me just... Okay. Um, so they, as they're talking, walking, and they're kind of talking about the things that they've seen lately and stuff like that. Um, and, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, <laughs> they go see the guy that does the rockin' and the whatever the fuck else they're called. And whenever they get there, um, Tylee needs to talk to the clerk to get whoever is in charge, get a meeting with them. And the clerk is just hacking and coughing. And, uh... Mishima, who I think is the Shanchan that we met before. So Mishima looks at the guy, the clerk, and says, Fellow shouldn't be here if he's ill. What if it's catching? You hear about all sorts of strange sicknesses these days. Man's hail at sunrise, and by sunfall, he's a corpse and swollen to half again his size, with no one knowing what he died of. I heard of a woman who went mad in the space of an hour, and everybody who touched her went mad too. In three days, she had... She and her whole village were dead, those who hadn't fled. Holy shit. <laughs> so we know that the Dark One is getting stronger by the minute and that all these kind of horrible, you know, dead people walking, bubbles of evil, 
streets swallowing people whole kind of shit is starting to happen where this clerk is hacking and coughing. And then, <laughs> this is the craziest shit I've ever read in my life. That's probably an exaggeration, but it's fucking crazy. So, <laughs> it says, this is the clerk, clutching his middle, the young man doubled over and vomited a dark stream that hit the floor and broke up into tiny black beetles that went scurrying in every direction. Someone cursed, shockingly loud, in what was an otherwise dead silence. The young man stared at the beetles in horror, shaking his head to deny them. Wild-eyed, he looked around the room, still shaking his head, and opened his mouth as if to speak. Instead, he bent over and spewed another black stream, longer, and that broke into beetles darting across the floor. The skin of his face began writhing, as though more beetles were crawling on the outside of his skull. A woman screamed, a long shriek of dread, and suddenly clerks were shouting and leaping up, knocking over stools and even tables in their haste, frantically dodging the flitting black shapes. Again and again, the man vomited, sinking to his knees, falling over, twitching disjointedly as he spewed out more and more beetles in a steady stream. He seemed somehow to be getting flatter, deflating. His jerking ceased, but black beetles continued to pour from his gaping mouth and spread across the floor. At last, it seemed to have gone on for an hour, but could not have been more than a minute or two. At last, the torrent of insects dwindled and died. What remained of the fellow was a pale, flat thing inside his clothes, like a wineskin that had been emptied. The shouting went on, of course. Half the clerks were up on the tables that remained upright, men as well as women, cursing or praying or sometimes alternating both at the tops of their lungs. The other half had fled outside. Small black beetles scuttled all across the floor. The room stank of terror. Holy shit! <laughs> what the fuck, dude? That's so crazy. I I read that entire paragraph with my jaw on the floor. <laughs> one of the one of the fun. Oh wait, rockin, morot rockin. That's what they are. Yeah, I found it. Great job, Leslie. Okay, morot rockin. So they're seeing the guy who runs the rockin and morot rockin stables or whatever. I guess what the fuck ever. But Tylee's like, yo, we need some of those, so send them to here. Um, so they get, let's see, I don't actually know how many they get. They get a bunch of them, and they use the note from Surath that says, you know, whatever, whatever this guy says, give it to him. <laughs> um, one of the things that I found funny was Perrin is so, like, laser-focused on getting Fael back, obviously, but there are a couple times where, you know how Matt struggles with the swirling colors and, like, he sees men and Rand fucking? <laughs> if that ever happens to Perrin, he's just like, nope, not right now. Goodbye. Fuck you. I don't care about you right now. Uh, because he's so focused on finding Fayo. I just feel like if he taught Matt how to do that, it would be a little bit less awkward, you know, whenever men and Rand are trying to have some uh, privacy. Whenever they get done with their business and start to leave, um, there's still all sorts of hubbub going on in, like, the lobby or whatever the fuck you want to call it, because there are, like, beetles everywhere, <laughs> and that shit had just happened, and everybody's, like, tiptoeing around the beetles and trying not to step on them, and Perrin just goes fucking crunching through the beetles to the door, <laughs> and they're all looking at him like, oh my god, ah, that's funny, Perrin does not have time for your beetle bullshit, <laughs> Then they go see the Forkroot Tea Mistress Lady. Um, 
Dude, I don't I don't even know what's up with this lady. She is obviously very proud of her job. She's one of the lesser hands, I guess, which is like um I don't know if they're like slaves or servants that are like higher up in the I don't know. <laughs> in the aristocracy or what the fuck ever this is. So they go and they're like, hey, how much of this fork root tea do you have? And she says, and I shit you not, I'm reading this right out of the fucking book. As of the mid-morning accounting, I have 4,873 pounds and 9 ounces of fork root tea. Holy shit, dude. How the fuck do they have so much of that? And apparently, they're also like getting farmers nearby to grow it and shit like that so they have more of a supply because like I mentioned earlier, now they're using the four fruit tea as the test to see if women can channel. Again, I have no fucking idea how they did it before. I've completely forgotten. But this seems like, you know, I mean, it seems a little less invasive, don't you think? Like, if you're a woman um, and you come across like a border crossing or the Sean Chan and they're like, hey, have some of this tea. That seems a little bit less frightening than, hey, we're going to go test you to see if you can channel. The result's the same, but if I'm going to get captured, I wanted some tea first, at least, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, she's very proud of having achieved such a huge quantity of fork root tea and having acquired it. And she has all of the schedule going out to, like, make sure that everybody gets shipments in time and shit like that. She says, I will not be surprised if I am offered a new name for this, though, of course, I may not accept Smiling a small, sleek smile, she touched the oval panel lightly, but it was near a caress. Okay, so hold on. Rewind for just a second. So on her dress or whatever, she has this blue panel that's, like, surrounded by little embroidered hands or something like that. So she's caressing this piece of what-the-fuck-ever on her shirt. And I was like, okay, I don't know. The fact that she was, like, caressing it is just a little weird to me. But whatever. <laughs> Um, so they get their tea, they're like, yo, we need literally all of your tea and carts and people to haul it and everything. And, um, she looks at Suros' order and she's like, what, you know, Tylee's like, man, I don't know if this is gonna work. And Perrin threatens her with death <laughs> using Suros' name, which is terrifying, but it totally works. And they get what they came for. Um, of course, they still gotta pack it up and shit like that, but it, like I said, it worked. And then as they're leaving, um, Perrin is attacked. Two arrows, one goes through his uh, arm and the other, like, um, like grazes his chest or something like that. Um, so, again, I think this is another example of the Forsaken having a hit out on Perrin and Matt. Um, and this is was that attempt. But um, after they attacked, they both hit the ground and because they'd poisoned themselves because they had failed. And Tylee says, if men will kill themselves rather than report failure, it means you have a powerful enemy. And yeah, it's the Forsaken. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are two good chapters. Um, pretty short. Not a lot happened, but I like them both. Okay, bye. Well, I really hope that you guys enjoyed the very first live reaction only episode of Stuck on Arrakis. Um, if you have any suggestions or if something didn't work for you guys, let me know. I always take your feedback into account because, you know, I do this for me, but I also do it for you. And if something's not working, you can always let me know. Um, anyway, that was a lot of fun. I had a great time. 
and I'll see you guys in the next live reaction collection.